When I was in the eighth grade, believe it or not, I was involved in sports. Now, some of you might question that now, but I ran on the track team, and uh, I was, we were practicing in, uh, in this parking lot area, and as often happens with parking lots, uh, they get gravelly, right? And we were uh, handing off the baton, and uh, as I was running, I was getting full speed, just about to hand it off to the guy in front of me, and uh, he decided to, instead of take off running, just stop. And, and so my, my gut reaction, just my natural reaction, uh, was to just hurl myself over him. Now, I wasn't trying to practice for hurdles, but, but that's what I did. I launched myself over him and landed uh, in a really bad spot. And I, I broke uh, both my, my uh, shoulder, I broke my wrist, and uh, I dislocated my wrist and broke some bones in my arm, and it was really bad. And they called my mom, and she came to pick me up. And she put me in the back of the car, and she took me to the hospital because they weren't sure exactly to do at the time. And uh, she took me to the hospital, and the whole ride there, I was thinking, are you purposely hitting every bump? (laughs) Of course, she was, you know, but no. And she wasn't, but she was just just frantic about this pain that I was in. And I'll tell you, it was really, really bad. Uh, It was very painful. And uh, I got to the hospital, and honestly, after that, I don't remember a lot. Uh, they, they ended up knocking me out, and they had to do surgery to put my wrist back. And um, my mother says that it was, uh, I love it when parents say this, it was worse for her than it was for me. <laughs> she said the sound was just agonizing as they put that back into place. And I was glad that I don't remember any of it, and that I was knocked out. Uh, but parents will often say things like that, won't they? That it, it's worse for me than it is for you, especially when it involves discipline, Right? How many of you parents maybe thought that or said that even to your children as you were disciplined? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And of course, every kid says, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but if they're smart, they're not going to actually say that in the moment. Uh, they're just going to you know, totally understand that. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of times that, that we have to endure some pain in order for things to be made right. Uh, how many of you have gotten a splinter before? Right? Not nearly as bad as having to have surgery and things, but man, those things can hurt. And oftentimes, the only way you can make the pain go away is to endure some more pain, to dig it out. And uh, so we're going to be looking this morning at at, a time that uh, the people of God had to endure pain for the greater good. Now, we're in the second week of our series, Summer in the Minors, and we're going through the last 12 books of our Bible, which are called the Minor Prophets. It's the part of your Bible, I said this last week, that probably still has the pages stuck together because we don't spend a lot of time in that section of Scripture. And they're not called the minor prophets because they're less important, but because they're shorter. Now, I think some people thought that since the prophets were minor, my sermon might also be minor. Uh, But if you were here last week, you know that wasn't true. It was just as long or longer than usual. Uh, But the minor prophets, they have for us a major message. There's importance in studying these books. As we saw last week, a prophet is simply a messenger from God. We often think of a prophet as someone who's just going to tell the future. And there is truth to that, that a prophet will uh, or foretell the future often. But they also foretell. Also will tell the things that are going on in that context, God revealing through them what this means and how we can apply it to our lives. I read this quote this week. I don't know who to attribute it to because I I didn't write it in my notes. Uh, But it said this, prophecy is more important for what it reveals about God than what it reveals about the future. 
And we can often, we look at the minor prophets, the major prophets, revelation, things of prophecy in our book, in our Bible, and we try to find out, what does this uh, tell me about the future? And, and there is some importance to that, but it's not nearly as important as what it tells us about God. And this is why studying them is so important. The minor prophets help us to see a clear picture of who God is and also who we are. So each week we're looking at a different book. So I encourage you to set aside some time each week to read these books. Uh, each one is short enough you can read it in the week. And, and it, I want you to understand this might be uh, the first time that many of us have ever looked at these books before. And I don't want you to feel shame in that. This is a wonderful opportunity as we go through this series this summer to read this, to see what is God trying to tell me about who he is and who I am. So I don't want us to feel shame, but let's take this opportunity, an invitation to look at these challenging texts. Now, last week we looked at the first of the minor prophets, Hosea, and we saw an amazing story of redeeming love. And we got a real-life illustration through the life of Hosea of the God who gives us second chances and third chances and always lets us come back to him. And this week we're looking at the next book, the book of Joel. Now, Joel's only three chapters, so you can read the entire book in about 15 minutes. So that's your homework this week. Read through this book. Whether you do it once, whether you do it every day, whether you break it up, whatever works for you, but I encourage you, read the book of Joel. And my hope is after the message today, if you've been nervous about reading this before, or you just didn't think it had any meaning for you, that you would spend some time to look at Joel. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Joel. And if you're not sure where that is, there's absolutely no shame in going to the very first couple pages of your Bible and looking at the table of contents. Uh, but if you can see, it's about there. <laughs> so, so spend a moment here and, and open up to the book of Joel if you have a Bible with you. It's going to be important for you to have that sweet as we go through this. But let's take a moment and let's just pray. God, we thank you for your word that, as we saw last week, is alive and active. And Lord, it, is there for us to be able to grow closer to you, to learn to know you, not just know about you, but to know you. And so, Lord, as we dive into this book of Joel, I just ask that you would be with us, even in our time here together this morning, that as we open up your word, Lord, you'd reveal to us uh, more of who you are, that we would get to know you more this morning through this book that's often confusing and is often something that we just pass over, Lord. God, would you speak to each of our hearts as we dive into your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got the book of Joel, let's open up here to the first verse, starting Joel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now, I've done a lot of research this week on the prophet Joel, and I want to take time this in this message to tell you everything that I learned about Joel. Are you guys ready? If you've got notes, I want you to take out your pen and paper and write this down. Don't miss this. Joel's dad's name is Pethuel. That's it. That's all we know about Joel. You got it, right? We're done, right? I told you it's going to be a minor sermon. No. The, unlike Hosea and some of the other prophets, we don't know a lot. We actually know very little, almost nothing about who Joel was. He doesn't give us any background information like Hosea did of kings or the time period that things were happening. And there's debate about when this was written. And if you're interested in further study on that, you can Google that and, and you can find out different scholars think different things for different reasons. But honestly, we just don't know. We know very little about Joel, and it's not important. 
I think that's part of Joel's message to us. It's not about him. It's not about the messenger. It's not even about us knowing where this happened in Israel's history or, or even why what he talked about here is happening. Because it's really a message for all of us through all time. This is a message for all of us. Joel is issuing a warning, as the prophets often do, for us. No matter when they read this. So we don't know much about the book of Joel. Uh, we do know that if Hosea, last, year I, or last week I talked about Hosea being this time period where, where Israel was just thriving, where everything seemed to be going well, but there was this underlying just decadence and, and all this, they had abandoned God, but on the surface everything seemed so great. We do know from what we read here in Joel that things are not going well. So if Hosea was like the 80s when everything was booming, then Joel's like 2020, Right? Everything's falling apart here. And so I want us to look over this book. As we're doing in each of these, we're kind of doing a flyover of these books, and I want us to see what we can learn from them. Uh, but to help us get through this without just reading the entire thing all together here this morning, I want to give you four R's, or actually three R's. And you're going to see these three R's. You're going to see them pop up here. But just keep that in mind. Be looking for the three R's. So let's continue reading in Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It says, hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all who live in the land, in all your history, has anything like this happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. And here's the story he wants to pass down. After the cutting locust eating, finished eating the crops, the swarming locust took what was left. After them came the hopping locusts, and then the stripping locusts too. So Joel wants the people to tell this story of these locusts that came and demolished the land. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with locusts. Honestly, I'm not very familiar with locusts. I often think locusts are just like, like grasshoppers, right? We just see around here. And, and they are to an extent, but they're kind of like a dialed-up, angry grasshopper. You can see a picture here on the screen of a locust. They're not exactly the most attractive. That's a beautiful picture of one. Uh, but when you see the devastation that they bring, you see that they might look... I mean, somebody might think that's cute. I don't know. But... Uh, they bring with them this destruction. You're going to see in this next screen. Uh, this is actually recently from Africa. This, these swarming locusts just demolishing the land. You'll see in this next picture, this is from Jerusalem many years ago. Uh, this fig tree that was there and how it was devastated by locusts just coming through there. And these locusts, uh, they devour everything in their wake. Uh, there's a movie that came out a couple years, actually, I think it was last year. It was the last of the Jurassic Park series. And they, they used locusts as the ultimate destruction that was plaguing Earth. That Earth would be destroyed by these, if you remember this, these genetically engineered locusts that just ravaged the land. Now these locusts, they could eat their own body weight many times over in food. And a swarm of locusts in just a few short hours could demolish an entire area of all of its nutrients. It was devastating for people now. If you've ever seen some of the, the uh, what they call the biblical plagues that are even coming out uh, on people now in today's land, uh, over in the Middle East and different places where locusts are still a big problem, can you imagine what they were like for these folks? 
who didn't have pesticides and no way to take care of them. When locusts would come, everything was destroyed. We often see locusts being used as a judgment on people. You're probably familiar with the Exodus story when God's people were led out of Egypt and one of the plagues that came upon the people of Egypt was locusts that demolished everything in their wake. We saw last week that judgment always has a reason. That God's judgment is never just done arbitrarily. It's always done for a reason. And here we're going to see this plague of locusts that instead of consuming the people of Egypt, was now consuming God's people, destroying their lands. There's a promise back in Deuteronomy, we looked at this last week, of God's covenant with his people. His promise that all of these things that we're going to read about in the Minor Prophets hinge on. This promise that if you will be my people, I will be your God. If you don't follow me, and he lays out all these different things that will happen, and one of them is you will be demolished by locusts. So we're going to continue reading in a moment here. But what we're going to see throughout the rest of chapter 1 is the devastation that these locusts bring. And that brings us to our first R, and that's recognize. To recognize the destruction of sin. Now these locusts, they're, they're really, all throughout Scripture, a metaphor for sin. And here... It's like as God is saying, you are as bad as the people of Egypt who I led you out of. All the destruction is meant to help us see what sin does in our lives. He says in verse 5, wake up you drunkards and weep. He says a vast army of locusts have invaded your land. He goes on in verse 8, weep like a bride dressed in black mourning for her husband. He says, the priests are in mourning, the fields are ruined, the land is stripped bare. Despair, all you farmers. The day of the Lord is near. And the day when destruction comes from the Almighty, how terrible that day will be. Our food disappears before our very eyes. And all of chapter 1 here just lays out how devastating these locusts are for the people. They're for everyone. They affect everyone from the drunkards who are basically aren't even paying attention to the priests. Everyone is affected by this. The land is destroyed. And it brings up another theme that we're going to see in the book of Joel. It's called the day of the Lord. In verse 15 it says, The day of the Lord is near, the day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. Verse 19, Lord, help us. The fire has consumed the wilderness pastures. The flames have burned up all the trees. Even the wild animals cry out to you because the streams have dried up. Everything is affected by these locusts. We have to recognize the destruction of our sin. So we see this theme of the day of the Lord in, in Joel. And the day of the Lord is a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. And when you see the day of the Lord, it's not talking about a particular day. And it's talking about different things. But it's always a season of God's judgment, but also his mercy, as we're going to see. Verse 11, the day of the Lord will be horrible. It says, who can endure it? Now, this might sound rhetorical, this no one. We would say, well, no one can endure it. No one can endure what's going on here. But Joel, he gives us an answer. So who can endure this? 
The devastation is disastrous, he says. We've never seen anything like this. It affects everyone. Now, if you're reading through this, you'll see that, that Joel kind of shifts in and out of talking about this actual plague of locusts that demolished the land uh, to talking maybe figurative language about another day of the Lord coming. When, when possibly, we don't know for sure if he's still talking about these actual locusts and trying to help them understand what God is doing here, or if he's saying, this is something that can happen. The locust could be like an army invading your land. And we do know in, in the future that, that Israel, that Judah is conquered by nations. So possibly God is talking about that, but it really doesn't matter in the context of us understanding what Joel is saying. He's saying just understand the destruction that awaits you. The devastation is disastrous. The day of the Lord thunders. And he says, the Lord is the head of this army. If you look, skip on to chapter 2, starting in verse 10. So the earth quakes as they advance. He's talking about this locust or this army, whatever it is. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars no longer shine. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? This seems to be incredibly bleak. And it is. And one of the recurring themes that we're seeing in the Minor Prophets is that God will judge. We saw that last week when Hosea listed all the ways that Israel had been unfaithful. And while Hosea provided a detailed list of the people's sins, Joel doesn't. And I really think that's because he doesn't need to. It doesn't matter the specific things that they're guilty of, the people know. But also like we saw in Hosea, God will judge, but he loves us so much that he wants us to be right before him. So that leads us to verse 12 of chapter 2, and this is our second R, to repent. Some translations will now say, so it said, the day of the Lord is a terrible, awesome thing. Who can possibly survive? And the next verse says, even now. This is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is still time. Even in the face of your suffering, even in the midst of your sin, turn to me. And we probably get to one of the two verses that you might already be familiar with from the book of Joel. Turn to me while there is still time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. So the second R for us, we have to first recognize the destruction of sin, and second, we need to repent. Now, it was a Jewish custom for people to tear their garments as a display of their grieving or their mourning. It's somewhat similar to how we might wear all black to a funeral. It's a sign of mourning. But just like you can go to a funeral wearing black and really not feel anything inside, so the people were often doing this. Tearing their garments, their, their garments, their robes to display the mourning of what was going on around them, but nothing was happening inside their hearts. They were outward displays, but they really didn't repent. God is saying, I want you to really mean it. 
Don't just tear your clothes, he says. I love the way the New Living Translation that I read here says it. Tear your heart. Be broken. Now, this is similar to what we saw last week in the book of Hosea. If you remember, Hosea 6.6, the most famous passage from that scripture, from that book. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. We have to recognize, we have to repent. Let your sin break your heart, he's saying. See, true repentance isn't getting caught. and It's not acknowledging the pain that you feel. It's recognizing the wrong and then moving your heart to make it right. The heart motivates the actions. The actions of fasting, weeping, and mourning, all those things are things you should do. You should outwardly display. There should be some change in what happens in you. You should live differently, but it starts with what's going on inside you. Fasting, weeping, mourning, those are things we should do, but we shouldn't live right, do the right things to prove that we're right. But we live right because we are right because of what's going on within our hearts. And God wants us to get our hearts right. That's what he cares about. He says, it's not too late. Even now, even in the midst of all of the garbage that you're going through, the judgment that's upon you, get your hearts right. It's not too late. God tells his people, this needs to happen now. It can't wait he goes on in verse 15. He says, blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. He's like, sound the alarm, right? Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, even the babies. He says, call the bridegrooms from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Even if they're on their honeymoon, interrupt them. It doesn't matter. This is more important to repent now. It says, let the priests, whoever minister in the Lord's presence, stand and weep before the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray, spare your people, Lord. We have to recognize what our sin does, the destruction that decimates our world. We have to repent. We have to turn away from that sin. And then we get to that third R. Restore. We restore. God will restore. Not only us, but we're going to see what else he's going to restore. If you're following along, you might have noticed I skipped a verse. Joel's telling the people about a terrible day of the Lord. Who can possibly survive? And he says, it's not too late, but let's look at the verse I skipped, verse 14. After we hear of God's amazing compassion and his unfailing love, it says, who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of a curse. If we would turn, if we would repent. Now, I don't think that's him, Joel saying like, I don't know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. I think he's saying, guess what? who knows? If you would turn, if you would recognize your sin, if you would repent of your sin, perhaps God will give you a blessing instead of this curse. If my people will recognize their sin, if my people will repent, then God may, your passage might say, relent instead of giving a reprieve. It says, Then the Lord will pity his people and jealously guard the honor of his land. The Lord will reply, Look, I'm sending you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy your needs. 
You will no longer be an object of mockery among the surrounding nations. I will drive away these armies. I will send them into the parched wastelands. Those in the front will be driven into the Dead Sea and those in the rear into the Mediterranean. And then he says this, Surely the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, O land. Be glad now and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. We sang about this this morning, didn't we? He has done great things. It says, don't be afraid, you animals of the field who were once decimated by these locusts, might add. Don't be afraid, for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees that maybe were ravished by the locusts and grapevines will be loaded down once more. Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for, he, for the rain he sends demonstrates his faithfulness. Once more the autumn rains will come, as well as the rains of spring. The threshing floors again will be piled high with grain. And here's what he says. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts the hopping locust, the stripping locust, and the cutting locust. It was I who sent you this great destroying army against you. He's reminding them, this is because of your sin. Once again, if you will repent, he says, once again, you will have all the food you want and you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. Then you will know that I am among my people Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Verse 25 tells that when we repent, he'll restore us. And not only will we be given what we've lost, but we'll get something even more. Look at verse 28. Then, after doing all those things, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. After God restores all that was decimated because of sin, He will then pour out His Spirit. Now, last week I asked you as we go through these books to be looking for Jesus, to look for the hope of Christ. And here is a foreshadowing of that hope. In Acts 2, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the birth of the church. You might be familiar with that passage of Scripture. And incidentally, the churches that follow the liturgical Christian calendar, those who, who, who practice that, today is what's called Pentecost Sunday. And it marks the seventh Sunday after Easter. And on Pentecost was when the promised Holy Spirit is given to the church. And not just it says to the Jews familiar with that passage of scripture, but to all people, all people, not just God's people here in Joel, but all people, including us who are believers in this room. Let's read from Acts chapter two, this passage that as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, Peter says these words as people are saying, wow, these people are crazy. What's going on? He says, no, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, in those days of the Lord, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants. 
men and women alike, and they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And then here is more, for, more allusions to what we read in the book of Joel. Blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now God just isn't allowing the Jews to repent. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's Spirit will be for everyone. Now Joel ends with God's judgment in chapter 3 over those who have not called on the name of the Lord. It's a picture of what we often call Judgment Day. When all the people will be judged, as you read this this week, you'll see in what's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is just, the word means decision. So it's the Valley of Decision. And you might have heard sometimes, you might have been to a revival and a pastor or a preacher would say, so you're in the Valley of Decision. You need to make a decision to repent, to turn away. Uh, There's a lot of great sentiment to that, and we do need to repent and turn away. But as we read here in Joel in chapter 3, If you're in the valley of decision, it's already too late to make a decision. That's not your decision that that verse is talking about, that place is referring to. It's God's decision. And so all the nations, all the people who have not called upon the name of the Lord will be put in this valley of decision. It says thousands upon thousands in Joel 3.14 are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord, another day of the Lord will soon arise. And this sounds like what we read in Acts. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will no longer shine. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a strong fortress for the people of Israel. So I know that's a lot of stuff we've just gone through there. Just kind of fly over quickly the book of Joel, but I want to leave you with a few questions. Because as you read the book of Joel, it brings up a question as whether natural disasters are a judgment from God. And the bigger question, really, that drives is, are the bad things in our life punishment for sin? And the truth is, we don't like to say this, but sometimes. Sometimes the things that happen in our life, natural disasters, or the things that happen in our lives, in our relationships with each other, they're consequences for our sin. But let's be careful not to try to assign everything that happens as judgment for someone's sin. We often do that, especially when we're looking at someone else's sin. Well, that happened because of this. Job's friends tried to do that, didn't they? Well, this must have been because of your sin, Job. What was it that you did that all these bad things happened to you? Jesus himself dealt with this in John chapter 9. The disciples asked him, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, no one. See, not every bad thing you experience is a consequence of your sin, but it is a consequence of sin because we live in a fallen world. I saw this on Facebook this past week. A friend of mine posted it. Uh, This person's not a believer, by the way, but they said, people swear they're fighting demons when the whole time they're fighting the consequences of their choices. Sometimes we are fighting demons, but more often than not, the things that happen in our life are consequences of our sin. Now, not every situation is that way, but if you're struggling with something, 
I want to ask you this question this morning. This is a takeaway from the book of Joel. Through your hardships, what is God trying to say to you? What is God trying to say to you through the struggles that you go through? They might not all be judgments against you. So we're going to have to ask that question, what did I do wrong? The better question is, what is God trying to say to you? Stuart Briscoe says this. He says, not all trouble is brought on by our sin, but often trouble brings a person to realize his sin. So whether from discipline or to help us grow, the question isn't, God, how do I get out of this? How do I deal with these locusts that are invading my life? The better question is, God, what do you want me to get out of this? Through your hardships, what is God trying to say to you? The second question, do you recognize the destruction that sin leaves in its wake? Do you recognize the destruction that sin is leaving in your life, that your sin is leaving in your life? It's like a swarm of locusts. It devours everything in its path. Now maybe you feel like locusts are eating away every part of your life right now. Your money, you try to get it right, but it just, you never have enough. Your relationships, your marriage, it's falling apart, it's being devoured by locusts. And you keep trying to fix it, to do something to make it better, but you're just tearing your garments. Instead of tearing your heart, you're not getting to the heart of the matter, you're not repenting from what it is that's really going on. I know that I often try to fill a void or I try to fix what's wrong with my life instead of looking at the problem and not recognizing the sin in my life that's really leaving a mess of destruction behind me. And the last question, is your heart broken because of your sin? Is your heart broken because of your sin? Do you remember before Easter we looked at Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes? And the first step to being part of the kingdom of God is mourning over our sins, right? To be poor in spirit. If you remember the phrase we use, that the world is not as it should be, that I am not as I should be. And true repentance starts in your heart. That's the message of Joel, is that destruction comes. And there's often a pain that's associated with what we're going through. And sometimes that pain is caused by God to bring us to that second R, repentance. To have us recognize that the junk that we're going through, we need to turn away from that. God says, if you recognize your sin, if you repent of your sin, I will restore you so much more than ever before. Maybe not physically, everything might not go back exactly the way it was. But he says, I'm pouring my spirit out on you. What more could you want than the spirit of God? In a moment, we're going to sing a song. And uh, this song has beautiful words that are really line up with the theme here in the book of Joel. The first verse is, are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you recognize the destruction that's happened in your life because of sin, the locusts in your life that have devoured things? Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. 
The chorus says, oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a few of these days of the Lord that we read about in Joel. Some have already happened and some are yet to come. But there is a day of the Lord that's available for you today as you run to the arms of Jesus who has made a way for you, who has paid the price for you, who has restored the brokenness in your life. Do you recognize your sin? Do you repent? Will you allow God to restore you to who he created you to be? Pouring out his spirit in your life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this message in Joel. Uh, Lord, it's a tough book, and uh, as we read this this week, we're, there are things that, that I, I certainly don't claim to understand in here. Metaphors and illustrations to things that have come, things that are yet to come. Lord, help us to, to get to the heart of what you're trying to tell the people of Israel and what you're telling us. Which is that there are consequences for sin, Lord, as we break that covenant relationship with you. Lord, help us to recognize that in our life. Help us to turn from our sin. And God, we thank you that you promise us that when we do that, who knows, you may relent. You may restore. God, we thank you for the promise in Scripture that you will pour out your Spirit among us, that we can be made right with you in spite of the devastation that our sin has caused. God, we thank you for that. We come to the altar this morning, Lord. Lay upon our hearts the things that we need to lay before you that we need to repent of. God, and for those who are maybe in the middle of the locust swarm and everything seems to be falling apart, Lord, even now, as you say, turn, may they turn to you and return to the God who can restore. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.